Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. everybody, and welcome back to New Books in History. I'm Marshall Poe, your host. Each week we pick a new history book that we find particularly interesting, and we interview the author of that book. This week, I'm very pleased to say we have Alan Steinweiss on the show, and we'll be talking about his terrific new book, Kristallnacht, 1938. One of the fundamental questions in modern German historiography is whether the Nazis created a new kind of German culture, a Nazi German culture, or whether there was something in German culture that gave rise to the Nazis. Most attempts to answer this question have revolved around the feelings and beliefs of so-called ordinary Germans, and they have concentrated on the activities of those Germans during the Holocaust. Allen, however, asks the same question of an earlier episode in Nazi anti-Semitism, and that is Kristallnacht 1938. He asked the question as to whether uh, ordinary Germans were prone to anti-Semitic violence prior to Kristallnacht, or whether the Nazi party itself was behind this particular spasm, or pogrom, as he calls it, in 1938. Uh, He does a terrific job of answering this question, and the question is uh, a good one and one that deserves serious consideration. So we should congratulate Alan on this book. I enjoyed talking to him today, and I hope that you enjoy the interview. Here it is. Hi, Alan. Hi, Marshall. How are you I'm today? Vermont. Yeah, I'm Vermont. You're, yeah, you're in Vermont. That's exactly right. How are things in Vermont? Uh, we're enjoying the mild winter, uh, except for a 32-inch uh, snowfall uh, a couple of weeks ago. Uh, it's been a mild winter. Yeah, we're not enjoying so a mild winter here. In you spent some time in the Midwest, didn't you? I was uh, at the University of Nebraska in Lincoln for 15 years. Yeah, exactly. Before, so, yeah. Before moving here a year ago. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, we had a big ice storm last week, and it's, it's just quite beautiful but quite deadly. So uh, we haven't had as much snow as you, but um, it's um, pretty treacherous out. I should tell our listeners we're talking to Alan Steinweiss today, and we'll be discussing his terrific book, Kristallnacht 1938. I've read a lot about Kristallnacht and the Nazis, and I have to say that this book was a revelation to me. It said many things that I did not expect. Uh, It's a terrific example of the use of heretofore um, unemployed uh, sources, uh, some of which were uh, remarkably detailed, and I hope we get a chance to talk about that. We'll also be talking, I guess, in a couple of weeks uh, to a historian who used a similar sort of source base, that is, these trials that were undertaken after the Second World War, and Alan mines those trials for Kristallnacht. It's quite incredible they had them at all, I think, but in any event, it's a it's a really wonderful kind of set-piece example of the um, clever use, the really clever, intelligent use of sources to uh, reconstruct a, an event that it turns out we really didn't know as much about as I thought we did, or I'll only speak for myself as I thought I did. So, Alan, congratulations on the book. Let me ask you to be begin by telling us just a little bit about yourself. Well, uh, I am a professor of history at the University of Vermont uh, in Burlington, where I also am the director of the Center for Holocaust Studies. Uh, Your listeners may not realize that uh, 
the field of Holocaust studies in the United States, one can argue, actually began here. Uh, one of the great seminal historians uh, of the Holocaust, uh, Raoul Hilberg, uh, who uh, published uh, the great work, The Destruction of the European Jews, uh, came to the University of Vermont in the, 19th, in the late 1950s, fresh out of graduate school, uh, and at a time before the academic world was paying any attention to that subject, and he published that great work in 1961, and then a second edition and a third edition in the 1980s and then the 1990s. And uh, ultimately, the academic world caught up with him, but we're proud here that uh, uh, we, we consider the University of Vermont to be the birthplace of the serious academic study of the Holocaust. I spent 15 years at the University of Nebraska before before coming here, uh, and before that I had spent a little time at uh, Florida State University in Tallahassee. did my graduate work at the University of North Carolina uh, at Chapel Hill, uh, where uh, I was a colleague in graduate school with a couple of uh, your, your uh, <laughs> colleagues there at the University of, uh, of Iowa. I worked under uh, Gerhard Weinberg uh, at Chapel Hill, uh, an eminent historian of uh, Nazi Germany and the, uh, the Second World War. And uh, before Chapel Hill, I was educated. I'm working my way backward here. I was educated at the State University of New York at Binghamton. I'm a native of uh, Brooklyn, New York, and grew up in New York City right? in Brooklyn. Yeah, I didn't know that Hilberg was at... Um, at Vermont. I, I had no idea about that. Yes, he spent uh, virtually his entire academic career here. Well, it's supposed to be a very pleasant place. I, I, don't, um, I, I, I don't doubt that he found it such. Yeah, his name and um, I guess it's Lucy Davidovitz. Uh, mm -hmm. Is she thought to be the other sort of founder of the field in the United States? I don't even know where she was located. I have no idea. Uh, she was based in New York. I forget at which university. Um, they were very different scholars, very different kinds of scholars, and Hilberg was more of the empirical, mm -hmm. archivally focused uh, research scholar, whereas Davidowitz was uh, a bit more of a synthesizer and a bit more of a uh, popularizer. Mm -hmm. they, they did have their disagreements. Uh, specifically over the issue of uh, Jewish resistance and more generally the Jewish response to uh, Nazi persecution and genocide. But she is certainly a member of that same of that same generation. I would argue that while that while Davidowitz was um, uh, more successful than Hilberg as a as a popularizer that that Hilberg's work has, uh, stood the test of time mm -hmm. uh, much better uh, among uh, academic experts in the Holocaust. It really has become, his work is really part of the kind of the intellectual and the research foundation of what many of us do mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, in a way that uh, Davidowitz's work is not so much anymore. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. No, I read both of these books as undergraduates on my own, and I, this was decades ago. And uh, I, I found them both uh, eye-opening. I think I also remember that Hilberg appeared as a uh, commentator on the world at war. Is that right? 
You know the uh, document. Is that right? You're probably you're probably thinking of uh, Claude Lanzmann's show. Oh yes, no, I am. I absolutely am. Yes, that's exactly right. right. Yes, he did. Right. Yeah, I remember and seeing. There are actually right. There are actually some stunning scenes of uh, Hilberg being interviewed by Lanzmann mm-hmm. uh, in Hilberg's home here in Burlington. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you're if you're a scholar and you're watching Shoah, those are among the most compelling scenes in the whole documentary uh, because Lanzmann built Hilberg up almost into kind of a hero of the film. It's, it's the scholar reconstructing from the documents mm-hmm. what happened and how, it, how things developed. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, it's a nice juxtaposition between Hilberg the historian with the documents in his hands in Vermont and then these interviews with people, uh, 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 many of them polls, some of them not, uh, about, about what they had seen. So it's, it's a good juxtaposition. But I do remember seeing Hilberg, the films of Hilberg with the documents in his hand and him explaining right. in a kind of dispassionate way, as you say, uh, what, what was going on there. It would be impossible for me to be as dispassionate as he was about right. attempting and to establish able- what happened. Right, and being able also to uh, tease meaning out of the most innocuous-looking passages in a document, his ability to kind of read between the lines or to interpret oh, yeah. some of the no, I re- technical features of a document. Yeah, I remember this, the uh, Zonderhandlung, the special handling. He talks about that, mm-hmm. what that might mean, you know, and clearly it's a euphemism for uh, mm-hmm. murder, really. And, uh, yeah, that was really quite that sort of... Uh, that sort of language that the Nazis used to, to hide what they did. Uh, so, kind of, did you ever get a chance to meet him? Oh, certainly. Uh, even though uh, you know he retired from Vermont in the early 1990s, and he passed away in 2007. Oh, really? Which was okay. A couple of years before I came to this university, but uh, you know, he was an active member of okay. the field and until uh, he died, uh-huh. and uh, I certainly, you know, I had the honor and pleasure of meeting him at, at conferences. Yeah. It must have, it must have been a, ver- a remarkable sort of uh, intellectual journey for him, because although the Nuremberg trials did, did a lot to uncover what had been done during the Holocaust, I, I don't think it was really until serious scholars started to go to the archives that we really understood what had happened. And I, and I have to imagine that for him it was it must have been quite shocking uh, to, sure. to see it all well, unfold. Yeah, well, actually, in the first edition of Hilberg's work, the 1961 edition, was based very largely on the documentary record that was assembled remember, yeah. by the prosecutors mm-hmm. at the Nuremberg trial, mm-hmm. although not all of the documents that he used actually were presented at the trial. But in, in, during the organizational phase before the trial, the, the, the Allied prosecutors you know, put together, they assembled this vast archive of documentation, mm-hmm. and um, uh, Hilberg had access to that. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, believe, I believe he used uh, a set of the documents that had been deposited in the library at Columbia University mm-hmm. where he received a Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, it's a, it really must have been a fascinating uh, career. Uh, let's um, let me ask you this: How did you actually come to write this particular book? Well, that's that's a, an interesting question. It's a good it's a good question, and you know, this is one of those subjects that I've been fascinated with ever since I started reading systematically about the subject of Nazi Germany and the Holocaust as a college student in the nineteen seventies. 
um, this uh, this idea that uh, in a modern civilized country and in a society in which discipline and order uh, are very highly valued, that there would be this kind of national level kind of spasm of, of violence um, I just found fascinating. And, um, you know, as I was a, a graduate student and then a junior scholar working on other subjects, I always had in the back of my mind the notion that I would one day write a book about this. The problem was that uh, you know, it's a subject that has been written on previously. There are other books on the subject, and the subject features, you know, features in larger, more synthetic works on Nazi Germany. And as a graduate student and a junior scholar, I, of course, had to find something new and original to write about. You know, if you want to get your PhD, <laughs> get tenure, and, you know, uh, distinguish yourself on the job market as a as a as a beginning uh, scholar, you have to find something new and fresh, and this subject was not a good candidate for that. But ultimately, I kind of got to a stage in my career, you know, having published a couple of books previously, where I could final where I finally was able to you know work on something I really felt like <laughs> I wanted to, and. Uh, I also believe I also came to believe, you know, as a, as a scholar working and teaching in this field, that, that even though there's a lot out there, there there really wasn't available in the English language a good, short, readable, synthetic work on the subject. You know, if if um, uh, if you were teaching a course of say an undergraduate university course on the Holocaust. As a student, you know, a bright undergraduate came up to you and said, I want to read on the, on the Kristallnacht, you know, what can I look at? And I don't read German. Uh, I, I really don't think there was anything to recommend to that student other than to go to some of the broader works on Nazi Germany and, you know, read this chapter or read that chapter. So I was trying to fill a, a lacuna in the English language, uh, uh, literature. And I set out to write something that would be simultaneously synthetic, that is to say, that would tell the whole story pretty much uh, in a way that could be understood by a non-specialist. But I also hoped to um, to have something new to say about the subject. It's, 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 a, it's an argument-driven book. It's, a, it's, an, it's an interpretive book. And uh, I was very, very interested in the question of the extent of the participation of, of so-called ordinary Germans in the event. And one of the key questions that I put to the evidence was uh, whether there had been as little kind of spontaneous joining into the riot uh, as is often presented in the in the in the scholarship on the mm -hmm. subject. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, maybe we should talk a little bit about the scholarship on the subject. Obviously, this is one of the major topics in modern German historiography. That is the extent to which there was uh, a kind of 
one wants to be very careful here, a kind of native German anti-Semitism that was tapped by the Nazis or whether the Nazis were the sort of standard bearers of a new kind of anti-Semitism. This has been debated uh, very much by all of the senior scholars in the field, including yourself. Um, but let's begin our discussion by talking about the ways in which the Nazis had sort of prepared the ground for Kristallnacht. Can you talk a little bit about uh, anti-Semitic propaganda and anti-Semitic measures prior to 1938, from 33 to 38? Sure. Well, in, in, in the opening introductory chapter of the book, I mean, the, the, the book really focuses, mo most of the book is about one week in Germany in the month of November 1938. There is a, an introductory chapter that uh, provides the necessary background from the beginning of the Nazi regime in 1933 until uh, November 1938. And um, the, the central question, I think, as we look at those years from 33 to 38, you know, with, with respect to understanding the Kristallnacht is the central question is, you know, to what extent the anti-Semitic program of the Nazi regime was legal uh, and was pursued through legal and bureaucratic means, and to what extent was it, um, did it depend on violence, either grassroots violence or uh, organized uh, violence uh, targeted at the Jewish community. Now, there's no question, and I think the uh, the existing scholarship is quite clear on this, and I'm, I don't fundamentally disagree with it. There's no question that the anti-Semitic program of the Nazi regime from 1933 until the end of 1938 depended primarily on legal and bureaucratic forms of marginalization and exclusion. Uh, the Jews were defined uh, as, uh, as a distinctive uh, racial group, not merely a religious minority, but as a distinctive uh, racial group. Uh, and uh, once they were defined as such, uh, they were systematically deprived of their legal rights, their rights as German citizens. Uh, they were systematically uh, purged from a wide variety of professions and uh, occupations. Uh, they were systematically uh, uh, deprived of their property. There was a very uh, complex uh, program that the Nazis referred to as Aryanization, the systematic tra transfer of Jewish-owned property. This would be personal, uh, let's say, real estate or businesses from this from Jewish hands to so-called uh, uh, Aryan hands, and uh, there were uh, Jews. There were uh, measures put in place to physically segregate the Jews. Uh, this was not yet, this was, this, this had not yet um, uh, taken the form of ghettoization. That mm -hmm. only really happened later. But, you know, there were communities that 
you know, prohibited Jews from, you know, like sitting on park benches and things like that. So, uh, you know, taken together, all of these measures, you know, constituted a, a, a legal and bureaucratic assault on the Jews. And then you have this massive eruption of violence in November 1938, and traditionally in the, you know, in the historiography on the subject, that event is depicted as basically, you know, having come out of nowhere, that it was this uh, kind of unprecedented, sudden um, explosion of, of, of violence targeted at Jews that had really kind of no basis in the behavior of the Nazi regime toward the Jews for the previous several years. And um, I think one of the one of the central contributions I try to make in my book is to show that uh, there was actually a good deal more continuity uh, in the use of violence as a measure of terrorizing Jews from 1933-1938 and has normally been uh, acknowledged or recognized in the scholarship. Uh, uh, my, my work builds really on um, some other recent scholarship that has been produced by uh, us. Uh, a, a couple of German scholars, uh, one in particular, uh, Michael Wilt, who is based in Berlin, who's done a very uh, important, a very influential book that just came out a couple of years ago, uh, documenting much of the anti-Jewish violence that occurred in Germany between 1933 and 1938. So, you know, uh, Questions of continuity and discontinuity are important, you know, for all historians working on almost any subject in, in any field. And one of the things I try to do in this book is to show that the the Kristallnacht uh, did uh, uh, that there was a bit more continuity uh, in anti-Jewish violence from the beginning of Nazi rule through the Kristallnacht that uh, has the, uh, more continuity than we've really recognized. It wasn't quite the, the rupture. The, mm-hmm. the, it didn't quite come out of nowhere uh, the way that it's often presented as having been. Mm-hmm. Now, I should, shouldn't overstate this, which is to say that I, you know, the, the degree, the magnitude of the violence and the intensity of the violence in November 1938 was absolutely unprecedented, but uh, neither did it basically materialize out of nowhere. Mm-hmm. So what sort of, uh, I'm sorry, what sort of uh, anti-Semitic violence do we find in the record and where do we find it in the record prior to 1938? Just to, you know, give an example that um, Americans will know because Americans are listening. Uh, we know that we have a history of lynchings and race riots in the United States. Is there anything right. like that on a local level in Germany prior to 1938? Does a town kind of explode? I don't know. Does uh, uh, I'm trying to, does Koblenz have a uh, you know a, a, a synagogue burning um, uh, episode or anything like that? I think your question about 
uh, the comparison of the anti-Jewish violence in Germany between 33 and 38 on the one hand and uh, the violence directed against African Americans in the American South, say, during the Jim Crow years on the other hand. I think that's a very valid comparison. I, I think one can, one can uh, um, very fruitfully uh, analyze the situation in Nazi Germany based on the record in the American South. Uh, uh, there were certainly no national level uh, centrally organized anti-Jewish violence between 33 and 38. But what you did have was uh, local uh, groups of Germans, locally based groups of Germans, usually organized either in local, you know, a, a local chapter of the Nazi Party or a local chapter of the SA, the stormtroopers, who are, of course, an element within uh, the Nazi Party. And they carry out harassment, intimidation, uh, low-level street violence against Jews. Um, this is much more pronounced in some communities than others, and why you see it in some communities and not in others very often depends on local conditions and the, the, um, the strategies employed by the local Nazi leaders. You know, Nazi Germany was a, was a dictatorship, but the uh, local and uh, regional leaders of the party actually had a great degree of uh, latitude mm -hmm. in how they could uh, uh, and would implement the um, uh, the priorities of the program and priorities of the party. Mm -hmm. And um, so technically this violence was uh, it was illegal. It was not officially ordered. Uh, there were a lot of you know, there was a lot of whispering and a lot of winking and a lot of behind-the-scenes conversations and uh, acts of violence would be perpetrated against you know, uh, you know, Jewish shops would be vandalized. Jews would be, you know, challenged on the street and and hit, uh, beaten up, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And uh, the authorities would basically uh, look the other way. Mm -hmm. uh, at the beginning of the Nazi regime, you actually had some authorities who wouldn't look the other way. You know, before the Nazi dictatorship consolidated itself. Uh, to the point where uh, the authority of the, you know, of the Nazi movement was was unchallenged. Now you still do, did have during the 1930s, uh, you know, like police officials, uh, uh, local prosecutors, and so forth, who did not approve of this kind of action. Mm -hmm. They may have even been themselves, you know, anti-Semitic, mm -hmm. but they just didn't believe that. Uh, you know, random street violence was a way to implement uh, a policy platform. Mm -hmm. uh, but, uh, you know, over time, as the Nazi hold on power in Germany became uh, stronger and stronger, uh, it became very difficult for these uh, civil servants who uh, disapproved of these kinds of actions to, you know, to really do anything mm -hmm, about it. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, I see. We do, yeah, yeah. And some, you know, very often this violence was, uh, uh, 
encouraged at, from very, very high levels of the regime, for example, uh, in the city of Berlin, uh, you know, the Gauleiter, the, the Nazi uh, district leader for uh, the city of Berlin, was Joseph Goebbels, mm-hmm. who was also the propaganda minister and who was, a, you know, a really vicious anti-Semite. And, you know, he was very personally frustrated, you know, that as late as, say, uh, you know, 1938, uh, you know, in the, in the spring and summer of 1938, after, you know, half a dozen years of Nazi rule, that there were still tens of thousands of mm-hmm. Jews in the city, and they still owned businesses, and they mm-hmm. still owned, you know, real estate, and they, they could still walk, you know, they could still promenade on the on the boulevards, you know, unmolested. There mm-hmm. were still Jewish synagogues that were functioning and that kind of thing. And uh, he found this unacceptable, as did many kind of rank-and-file members of the Nazi party. And, you know, he basically uh, gave a green, this is Goebbels, gave a green light to the local Nazi, uh, to some local Nazi a- activists, to you know, carry out uh, a fairly fairly widespread program of um, uh, kind of violence uh, targeted primarily against Jewish uh, property, mm-hmm. and um, you know Hitler wasn't even though Hitler himself uh, did not uh, order every you know. You know, he was not involved in the implementation of every detail of anti-Jewish policy. He did keep abreast mm-hmm. of what people uh, under him were doing, and from time to time, uh, in in this case that I described with respect to Goebbels, but also in other cases as well, from time to time, Hitler had to kind of personally intercede to put a halt. To this kind of violence, mm-hmm. you know, normally he looked the other way. You know, let let these people have their fun, let them let let the good, loyal, anti-Semitic Nazis vent their wrath against the Jewish community, mm-hmm. as long as they didn't push it so far that it would kind of you know uh, raise serious questions in the eyes of millions of Germans about whether the Nazi Party was you know really kind of. Uh, in control, um, you know, there were there were millions of Germans who, uh, while they may have approved of much of what the Nazi government was doing with respect to economic policy and foreign policy, still insisted on, you know, maintaining order in the streets mm-hmm. of Germany and, uh, you know, wide-scale vandalism uh, against uh, private property, even if it was Jewish property, is something that a lot of people didn't didn't approve of, and mm-hmm. so from time to time, Hitler had to basically intervene and order the people below, you know, to, to rein in the people below, mm-hmm. uh, you know, when when there was some concern over the you know the image of Germany among among German moderates or um, or uh, or Germany's image abroad. Mm-hmm. No, I see. Let's um let's actually move on to the Kristallnacht itself. One question that I had uh, that really was prompted by what you just said: that if everything you say is true, and I believe that it is, then the uh, Nazi Party officials, uh, that is Goebbels and Hitler, and so on and so forth, they knew that uh, there was a certain amount of 
restraint already being exercised by the party, so that if they uh, let the hounds loose, so to say, that they would or could uh, produce something like Kristallnacht. Um, right. Would they, that be correct? That that, yeah, I, I think that's a good way of putting it. They, they understood that the uh, potential existed uh, uh, within the rank and file of the Nazi party and within certain circles in the German population that were not in the party but were sympathetic, that, that, that if the restraints were lifted and if the signal was given, they knew that there would be uh, a, uh, a reservoir uh, of, uh, uh, or, or a pool of Germans prepared to carry out violence against mm-hmm. the Jewish population. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Why don't you tell uh, us? Why yeah. don't you? Why don't you tell us how exactly the, the restraint was lifted? Let's move on to November 1938 itself, sure. because one of the interesting and kind of paradoxical things is it seems as if. Uh, the decision to initiate the pogrom was sort of spontaneous. Yeah, uh, that's true. Uh, that is not necessarily an original conclusion on my part. I think most historians who specialize in Nazi anti-Jewish policy have for some time now understood that the the Kristallnacht was not had not been planned in advance, that it was a very, it was a decision kind of made on the spot mm-hmm. in uh, on November 9th, 1938. Although from time to time, you, you will read in maybe some more popular treatments of the subject, you will still see echoes of the, of the assertion, which used to be much more commonplace, that is, that the whole thing had kind of been premeditated and that they were just kind of like waiting for, for, for the right moment. Mm-hmm. Um, um, the, the, the event that really kind of sparked the, the pogrom uh, happened on November 7th, uh, on the morning of November 7th, 1938. And this occurred in Paris. Uh, a young uh, a Jewish teenager, 17-year-old uh, uh, Jew from Poland, uh, Herschel Grunspan, uh, walked into the German embassy in Paris, and uh, exactly what transpired uh, after he walked in uh, uh, remains to this day a mystery, but he ended up shooting a fairly low-level uh, young uh, German diplomat uh, by the name of Ernst von Rath. And um, the, um, the German, pre- the, German uh, 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 the, the, the Nazi-controlled uh, German media, that is to say the, the radio and the newspapers, began immediately to uh, play this up as evidence of a uh, Jewish conspiracy, as an international Jewish conspiracy to uh, intimidate Germany, uh, you know, which was, of course, nonsense. I mean, there's no question that whatever, whatever Herschel Grunschwan's motivations may have been, and there has been some 
disagreements about that, and perhaps that's something we want to talk about a little later. But whatever those motivations may have been, they were personal. He wasn't really acting as part of a, an organized plan. But this was an opportunity now for uh, German propaganda to, uh, you know, basically uh, illustrate uh, how uh, the, the, the supposed international Jewish conspiracy was uh, now attempting to kind of retaliate against uh, Germany for its anti-Jewish policies by, you know, carrying out a premeditated assassination of a of a German diplomat. What, this was seen as an act of intimidation. What, why did Why did Grunspan say he did it? Well, Grunspan originally. I know that he changes right, his story. Right. Right. Well, Gr Grunspan. Uh, was a, was from a Polish Jewish family that had moved to Germany immediately after the First World War. Was living in Hanover, and um, uh, Grunspan himself uh, became very, as a as a young man, as an adolescent in Germany, had become very uh, frustrated with the way that he was treated. So his family sent him to Paris to live with, with some relatives, and then. Uh, at the end of October 1938, the German government uh, rounded up several thousand Jews in Germany who, who had been Polish citizens, like the Grunschbahn family, and basically shoved them across the, the Polish border, basically forcibly deported them. But the Poles didn't want them back. Um, and uh, as a result... Uh, these thousands of Jews, including Grunspan's family, ended up living in a kind of no-man's land between Germany and Poland, like right on the border, and for, 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 for quite some time. And, you know, it was the, it was the early winter, the, the nights were cold and so forth, uh, sanitation and uh, nutrition were problematic and so forth. So these people were suffering, and, uh, you know, Grunspan claimed that uh, he wanted to, he was basically retaliating against the Germans for uh, the ill treatment of not only his family, but his people by the uh, Nazi regime. He claimed to be acting basically, not as part of a conspiracy, but basically on behalf of his own oppressed family and and, and, and people. And, and you know, I, I think it's important to say that they actually were oppressed. I mean, imagine, just to put it in oh, American sure, context, sure. if we if the United States sure. decided that it would round up legal Mexican immigrants and then shove them across the border to Mexico, and the Mexican government refused to take them and they would live sure. there on the Rio Grande. I, I would right. be I would be a little bit miffed too if I were one of these people. Right. Oh, of course. Oh, of course. I mean, you know, the, the, nobody um, nobody you know uh, could could argue that. Uh, you know that that Grunspan wasn't very justifiably yeah. upset. You know that the the Jewish community in France uh, was very angry at Grunspan uh, because you know they were already kind of under fire politically by uh, you know some sectors of uh, French society and the French media for trying to uh, you know undermine a rapprochement between France and. Uh, Germany and uh, the uh, the last thing the Jewish community in France wanted was to become associated with 
you know, an act of violence perpetrated against mm-hmm. German diplomats. Mm-hmm. So, you know, Wurzbaum may have kind of subjectively and sincerely believed that he was doing something positive mm-hmm. on behalf of his people, mm-hmm. but uh, his own people in France didn't really didn't really see it that yeah. way. And his his timing and, uh, his. I was going to say his timing was bad uh, in the sense that sure. um, two days later, the most important event in the uh, Nazi celebratory calendar, if I'm not incorrect, takes place. Right, right. So what happens is, so starting on the 7th, on the day of the shooting and then for the next couple of days, the, the German media are basically uh, harping on this case, you know, building up resentment against the, the, the Jewish community. And then on the 9th of November... Uh, Ernst von Roth, the German diplomat who, who was shot, actually dies. And the 9th of November is no ordinary day in Nazi Germany. In fact, uh, the 9th of November is, uh, you know, the single most important day on the Nazi ritual calendar. Mm-hmm. It's the anniversary of the Beer Hall Putsch of 1923. And so in 1938, it's the 15th anniversary. That's kind of a round mm-hmm. anniversary. Yeah. Um, and uh, uh, the highlight of every November 9th is a kind of ceremonial reenactment of the events of November 1923 in Munich, where the Beerholm had been uh, had been attempted. So it's 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 a day of ceremonial commemoration of the martyrdom of several Nazis in in 1923 and. One of the points I try to argue in the book is that um, the uh, you know what the uh, the Nazi regime uh, or or from the in the Nazi mentality uh, the Nazi understanding of history uh, the Nazi worldview posits that all of the problems of Germany, uh, you know, during the Weimar period, uh, and the very problems that uh, provoked the Beerholt Putsch in the first place in 1923, you know, the Treaty of Versailles and the loss of German colonies and the occupation of the Rhineland by uh, the Western Allies and uh, the, you know, the Germany's economic problems, and most notably, you know, the recession, the, the, uh, the inflation, the hyperinflation of 1923. All of these things were, you know, laid at the door of Germany's internal enemies, the, the, the same internal enemies who supposedly had stabbed Germany in the back during the, uh, you know, at the end of the First World War. Mm-hmm. And these, of course, were communists, socialists, and above all, Jews. Uh, and, you know, from the Nazi point of view, uh, you know, they, they subscribe to this notion of Judeo-Bolshevism. They basically believed that communism was you know, a Jewish plot. So uh, the, the martyrs of the Beerholt Coach in 1923 were basically, you know, people who had been victimized by, by Jews. And now you have 15 years later, on the very day that that... Earlier Nazi martyrdom was being was being commemorated. You have a new Nazi martyr, mm-hmm. uh, uh, Ernst von Rath. And while he was a low-level German, a relatively low-level German diplomat, the 
the German media built him into a much more prominent figure than than, than he really was. And, uh, you know, as all of this was happening uh, on the uh, 7th of November, uh, the 8th of November, and during the day on the 9th of November, you actually see the eruption of anti-Jewish uh, violence on a kind of localized level in various places in Germany, or almost particularly in and around the city of Kassel, mm -hmm. in kind of north-central Germany, in an area known as uh, electoral Hesse. And, you know, this is where that continuity with the pre-1938 violence mm -hmm. comes in. So these are more or less spon these are spontaneous. We would call them spontaneous as opposed to what followed. Yeah. Well, uh, you want to be careful with that word. I understand. Yeah, but, that's a tough. That's a that's a tough term. Uh, and you know, I tried my best using some of the uh, post nineteen forty five trial materials, mm -hmm. as I say, uh, historical materials, uh, testimony, and other material that was generated by the trials of the perpetrators of the Kristallnacht uh, before West German courts, mm -hmm. or before courts in uh, occupied Germany. I tried my best to kind of reconstruct what happened in those communities on the 7th of November uh, and the 8th of November and during the day on the 9th of November, that mm -hmm. is to say, in that period of roughly, you know, uh, uh, 48 to 72 hours mm -hmm. before the eruption of the nationwide pogrom on the night of of November 9. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> there were most certainly. Uh, it, 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 I'm not sure I can say that they were spontaneous, even though there were elements of spontaneity. Certainly, there were individual people who, once given the opportunity to join into the violence, joined in spontaneously. Mm -hmm. But the actual local anti-Jewish riots during that period from the 7th to the 9th were probably, most probably organized, but organized at the local level. Mm -hmm. They weren't ordered from Berlin or from Munich, where the where the not where much of the Nazi leadership was already congregating for the November 9th commemorations, but local Nazi officials, that is to say fairly low-level Nazi officials, as they had been doing all along between 33 and 38, now took it upon themselves to organize uh, anti-Jewish actions. Mm -hmm. And is it? I, I think it's, I was going to say it's it's Goebbels' idea originally, and then he takes it to Hitler. Can you describe? There's there's a there's a great scene in the book uh, that that uh, shows Goebbels talking to Hitler on the evening of uh, November 9th. And, and apparently right. they're seen, but no one can hear what they're saying. But you right. kind of reconstruct what they're saying. Yeah. Well, one of the arguments I make in the book is that the the localized anti-Jewish riots of November 7th, 8th, and then the daytime of November 9th were actually not Goebbels' idea. Yeah. But they originated really kind of in local Nazi organizations. That Goebbels was aware that this was happening, and it was his idea you know, to basically uh, uh, embrace that violence that was now percolating up from below, from below, and to organize it centrally, and to really kind of now give the Nazi activists throughout the country and their 
sympathizers, you know, more broadly in German society, an opportunity to vent. Mm -hmm. And uh, the scene that you were talking about on, on the evening of November 9th, one of the highlights of this annual commemoration of the Beerhold Putsch, was that the Nazi uh, leadership, the, all of the highest-level leaders of the party and the government, uh, and all of the, the Gauleiter, the regional leaders, and the leaders of all of the various Nazi auxiliary organizations, they would meet for dinner. You know, the whole hierarchy of, of Nazi, the Nazi regime would be in the same room. And this happened on the evening of November 9th. And if you've ever been to Munich, uh, or if you're, if you're listeners, have ever been to Munich, uh, uh, you've probably actually seen the room where this happened mm -hmm. because it's right on the Marienplatz, the, that central square, you know, where the Glockenspiel is that all of the tourists go to see. And uh, it's, it's a, a building called the Old Town Hall, which is the older of, I mean, the new town hall in Munich is also very old looking, but this is a much older building, which is kind of off to the right if you're looking at the at the Glockenspiel. And it's been, and Hitler was sitting with Goebbels, and they, uh, they, uh, many of the people in the room who later testified about it uh, witnessed them having a kind of, a, you know, a very agitated conversation and then very uncharacteristically, you know, in a departure from previous uh, practice uh, at those November 9th dinners, Hitler got up very abruptly and left. Mm -hmm. Normally he wouldn't have done that. And then Goebbels, a couple of minutes later, stood up and informed everybody in the room that the Hitler, that the Fuhrer had authorized uh, a nationwide uh, action uh, against the Jews and that uh, he basically explained the synagogue should be attacked and that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Hitler left, uh, uh, you, know, you know, he was the leader of Germany, uh, but he had just um, authorized an action that uh, was uh, illegal, even according to German law of that day, it was illegal. Um, and uh, certainly, you know, his standing as an international statesman, uh, as the leader of, you know, an important European country, uh, would have been compromised, uh, you know, had, had he himself kind of, you know, openly in front of all of these people uh, ordered violence, you know, against a, a domestic mm -hmm. uh, minority. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, uh, and then, and then what uh, transpires is uh, the, the word goes out to uh, the local party officials uh, by right. telegram and by telephone. People are running to telephones to uh, contact their local party cells. That's what we'd call them in the Soviet Union. I don't know what they were called in Nazi Germany, but the, the word goes down the hierarchy to the local level. Right. And um, <clears throat> I think one of the most fascinating things in the book, uh, at least the one that is most memorable about these, is a, a moment where the communication as to what is to be done is misunderstood. And right. the, the message is not you're supposed to go burn synagogues or inside a pogrom, but you're supposed to kill the Jews. 
And what is fascinating to, to me about this is that the people that receive the order don't really blink. Maybe you could tell that story. Right. Well, some do blink. Yeah. But, uh, you're right that, 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 other, that others don't. Uh, well, of course, you know, there's no email. There's no cell phone. <laughs> uh, so, you know, here you have a decision being made on the spur of the moment that now needs to be communicated uh, in, you know, a fairly large country that, you know, has, you know, 70 million people or so. Um, you know, and um, so after hearing, well, one thing that needs to be said is that the Goldwells gave this order to the assembled Nazi leaders verbally. And maybe some of them kind of jotted some things down, but others probably didn't. And so, you know, they're all sitting in Munich, and uh, they now have to, you know, they now have to communicate this order to Cologne and Hamburg and so mm -hmm. forth. So they all go kind of scrambling out of this meeting hall, you know, looking for phones or access to, uh, you know, telegraph or telepipe, you know, just some way to kind of communicate with their offices. And it's late at night. People have been drinking. It had been a very, very busy day. There was kind of a lot of room for confusion. And uh, on the other end, uh, that is to say, you know, in Hamburg or Cologne or, you know, in, in any number of places, the people on the other end of the line, you know, may have already gone home or, mm -hmm. or gone to sleep. So the, the actual transmission of the order, you know, given the, the, the technology of, of the time and, you know, given the fact that people that, that the Nazi organization had not been sitting nationally, had not been sitting around waiting for such an order, right? <laughs> that it had not been planned. It, it was very, very chaotic, and there was a tremendous potential, really, for for mis for miscommunication. And the order kind of did get garbled in many cases. And some people on the receiving end, not only when they received the, you know a, a phone call from Munich, but you know what would happen is that. The uh, Gauleiter in Munich would call, say, his office, say, up in Hamburg, and the book has a, an example about, uh, I'm sorry, Bremen. The book has an example about Bremen, you know, that's the other side of the country. So they'd call somebody in Bremen, and somebody in Bremen would take the call, for, and then that person would have to communicate the order downward to all of the you know, these kind of, you know, concentric circles mm -hmm. of the Nazi uh, organization. So there was a whole kind of, you know, chain of communication by telephone. And and everything, you know, and since there was no written order, it was basically uh, a chain of telephone calls, and, and, and every telephone call contained that, you know, carried with it the potential of a mm -hmm. further miscommunication. Mm -hmm. And uh, finally, you know, when at the most local level this order was received, you know, there were cases in which people thought that they were receiving an order to actually kill Jews. Mm -hmm. This gets back to what you were saying earlier, is that some of them didn't blink. Right? Some of them did. Some of them were kind of incredulous. It's not that they weren't anti-Semitic, but they... 
you know, it was possible to be an anti-Semitic Nazi and not be a murderer. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, mm-hmm. yeah, uh, no, I mean, I just, I was going to say, I, I found that, that, that particular anecdote, uh, fascinating and, and revealing. And, and, uh, for those of you who will read the book, and I hope a lot of people will, uh, it's, it's told in, in great detail. And yeah, you actually have a certain amount of sympathy, I hate to say it, for, uh, the individual who, uh, does blink and says he does not want to do it, uh, and then is more or less forced, I don't know if forced is the right word, to kill an elderly Jewish doctor. But, um, right. it really is sort of moving in a way. It, it, uh, Again, you, you can't really have sympathy for a murderer, but nonetheless, it, 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 it kind of gets right to the, the paradoxes that I think many Germans faced when wanting to be loyal to the Nazi regime meant murdering innocent people. Um, one of the things... Well, one, of the re- one of the reasons that I make the point of you know, reconstructing stories like that in detail is to make my book relevant to scholars and students who, you know, have an interest in, you know, that larger question of the motivations of the perpetrators of the Holocaust. You know, in that particular respect, my book kind of links up, you know, with the debates, you know, over, you know, Daniel Goldhagen's Hitler's willing executioners and, you know, his 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 debate with Christopher Browning and so forth. That, you know, the that that one of the central questions is how do ordinary people or, okay, in this case, these were members of the Nazi party, but not necessarily people who are kind of, you know, hardcore, you know, uh, ideological murderers, but how do these people become murderers? Mm-hmm. And most of the scholarship on that subject has been focused on the actual years of the war. Mm-hmm. And one of the things I try to do in the book is kind of move that up in 1938. There mm-hmm. were several dozen murders uh, perpetrated in connection with the Kristallnacht and you know, at least in some of those cases, we can uh, we can examine, you know, to what extent ideology was a factor, and to what extent uh, other forces were involved. And in the case that you're describing, what I try to show is that um, the person who actually committed the murder was reluctant, and you know, in the end, he kind of acquiesced to the peer pressure mm-hmm. of other Nazis. Uh, you know, his, 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 his Nazi comrades. So he himself was reluctant, but he ended up doing it. Uh, on the other hand, I think that the, the anecdote also demonstrates that, that many of his colleagues, even though they weren't the ones that actually pulled the trigger, that many of his colleagues were very keen to kill the mm-hmm, Jew. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I think that's exactly right. And you do a good job of connecting this particular event with that, uh, what is really quite large literature on uh, the perpetrators of the Holocaust, just so. Um, one of the things that, um, we're running out of time, but one of the things I really wanted sure. to hear you talk about was um, the, 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 well, the attempt by the Nazis to put uh, uh, Grunspan on trial. And right. one of the things that you point out there is that there seems to be and, and this I found truly astonishing and eye-opening, on the part of the prosecutors, no doubt that he was part of some international Jewish conspiracy. In other words, they were not using this cynically, as we might expect. They really right. believed that there was such an international Jewish conspiracy. How, right. How, how could they believe that? <laughs> well, they were prisoners of ideology. Uh, they would be neither the first nor the last uh, such people uh, to fit the to fit that uh, description you know one of the things I try to argue in the book is that you know 
they themselves could never really figure out, you know, if they were absolutely certain that Grunspan had been kind of recruited by some international Jewish conspiracy and they had put the gun in his hand and told him what to do and so forth. And they continued to believe this, even though as hard as they tried, they could never construct what even to them was a plausible scenario or a convincing scenario of how that actually happened. <laughs> but uh, so, you know, and, and, and I, you know, I, in, at one point in the book, I, I, I can't remember exactly how the line goes, but I say something like, you know, they, they, the, the only uh, scenario that they didn't seriously entertain was the possibility that Grunspan actually acted alone. Yeah, right. Exactly. You know, which is which is the explanation that is most consistent with all of the with all of the evidence. It, it is so but, difficult. It is know, so. It is. I was going to say it's just so difficult for me to enter that mindset. I, I don't know why. Maybe it's because of the way I was brought up. I, I, I or American skepticism or something. I, do, I don't believe most of anything, but it, it's just so hard to enter that mindset that you could actually well, think that Soviet, there is this. You're a Soviet historian. I mean, yeah. <laughs> well, there was an international capitalist conspiracy. Right. <laughs> it was called right. capitalism. Right. You know, they were. You know, we like went to war against them. I mean, it was. They weren't completely paranoid, but this one seems to have been just invented almost whole cloth. I, I don't. It's very hard for me to to understand exactly how they could how they could seriously believe that. I can certainly understand how they sure. could use it as a cynical political ploy to mobilize the German people to whatever rational end they might have. But it's really hard for me to understand how these quite intelligent people could think that there was some international Jewish conspiracy out there in the absence of almost any evidence. That there, that there right. was. Well, I don't. I don't think that having a high IQ <laughs> necessarily uh, exempts no, one from no, theological no, self-delusion. No, yeah. Pardon one me. One of the things yeah. I try to. One of the things that I demonstrate in the book, I think, is that uh, you know, in uh, these two people in particular, uh, uh, one of them, uh, uh, Diverga, who was propaganda ministry official, you know, kind of in charge of orchestrating. Not only all of the, the, not only was the original kind of narrative about Greenspan acting on behalf of the international jury, that all was that kind of his invention, but he was also one of the key people involved yeah. in the, in the uh, orchestration of the trial during the early 1940s, the trial that actually never, never took place. Yeah. But he, he actually had a post-war career in West Germany, uh, uh, he was involved in a kind of a circle of unreconstructed or kind of only partially reconstructed Nazis who had gravitated toward the Free Democrat Free Democratic Party in the 1950s, the so-called Naumann Circle, taking its name from uh, one of the propaganda ministry officials, Werner Naumann, and uh, he actually believed. Even in the 1950s, he was absolutely convinced, even in the 1950s, that Grunspan had acted, you know, on orders from from kind of, you know, Jewish conspiracy. Yeah, this is just, um, 
it, it, I just find all of that completely bizarre. Let me let me ask you just a final question because I think that our uh, listeners will want to know. They can know they, they can find out if they read the book. What happens to Grinchman? Well, he's probably killed. You know, as I describe in the book, the, the trial did not actually materialize because Grunschbahn began to argue to his German interrogators. You know, once he was in German custody, uh, he began to argue to them that uh, he had actually previously known Ernst von Rath, his victim in Paris, and that, in fact, uh, they had been involved in a homosexual uh, relationship. And uh, whether this is true or plausible is a very complicated issue, and uh, I try to remain agnostic about that uh, in the book. I think one could probably write an entire book on that on that on that question. Mm-hmm. But um, well, if it wasn't true, it was brilliant. Well, it was. Well, <laughs> it was. Yeah. Well, uh, it may very well have been uh, a. Uh, a strategy to basically deter the Germans from putting him on trial. And it was brilliant, as you said, in the sense that it actually worked. We do have, uh, you know, one of the sources that I use in the book is the diary of Joseph Goebbels. And Goebbels was actually, was absolutely convinced that this was a lie. Uh-huh. Uh, uh, since Jews lie, this is, you know, yeah. uh, just another example of uh, this phenomenon at work. Mm-hmm. Um, and but the thing is that once the decision was made not to go forward with this show trial, then Grunschbahn basically became uh, dispensable, yeah. and uh, he was most likely mm-hmm. killed. Mm-hmm. Uh, there were rumors after the war that he was um, alive and living in Paris. Kind of, uh, you know, under uh, a pseudonym, uh, which struck some people as plausible, given that, um, uh, as I mentioned earlier, you know, what he did in November 1938 did not actually ingratiate him with mm-hmm. a lot of people in the Jewish community in Paris. So the argument was that he had good reason, if he was still alive, to remain anonymous. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, um, but that probably wasn't the case. He was probably killed uh, in uh, in a concentration camp mm-hmm. uh, during during the war in 1942 or 1943. I see. Well, Alan, we've taken up a lot of your time. I really appreciate it. I could talk about this for another hour probably, and I imagine the listeners could listen. But I want to thank you very much for uh, speaking with us today about your new book. The new book is Kristallnacht, uh, 1938. Um, Alan, we have a traditional final question on the show, and that is, uh, what is your next project? What are you working on now? Oh, well, good question. Uh, I'm actually entertaining a couple of different possibilities. Uh, one would be a kind of general synthetic history of Nazi Germany, uh, and the other, uh, a much narrower project. I'm very interested in a uh, uh, a figure named uh, Georg Elzer, uh, somebody who uh, many many of your listeners uh, may have never heard of. I certainly haven't. Yeah, he was the person who uh, came very close to assassinating Hitler in November of 1939. Uh-huh. Uh, he was a uh, again, he he was he acted alone. He was a relatively 
simple person. He was a uh, a an, a shriner, an expert carpenter, cabinet maker, and clock maker, hmm. who through a very kind of in- ingenious plot planted a knowing that Hitler on November 9th, 1939 would be giving a speech in, and again, you know, this again relates to the annual anniversary of the beer vault, mm-hmm. which Almach one year earlier did. Uh, knowing that Hitler was going to give a speech in the same place that he did every year, he actually managed to plant a bomb inside a kind of an architectural uh, structural column in mm-hmm. the, in the, in the meeting hall. And only by virtue of the fact that Hitler concluded his speech early and left uh, was Hitler's life spared mm-hmm. because the bomb actually blew up as El- Elzer had planned. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And uh, it ended up killing quite a few people who mm-hmm. were still in the, in, the, in the meeting hall. And if Hitler had been at his podium when the bomb went off, he would have most likely been killed as well. Mm-hmm. You know, we know a lot about the July 20th plot, July 20th, 1944 plot that uh, also came close to killing Hitler. That mm-hmm. was the, the plot of the, of the, the military officers mm-hmm. led by Stauffenberg. Stauffenberg, yeah. Uh, yeah, obviously, you know, Hollywood films right. have been made about that and so forth. Uh, but uh, we know much less about Elzer. And that case hasn't received nearly as much play. And I'm, mm-hmm. I'm interested not only in Elzer himself and what may have motivated him, but also in why, since the end of World War II, that particular case hasn't received nearly mm-hmm. as much attention as the Stauffenberg mm-hmm. plot. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I don't know. That's an interesting question. Well, whichever topic you pick, I hope that you will... Uh, reappear on the show here because it's been very enjoyable talking to you. Again, the book is Kristallnacht 1938, and we've been talking to Alan Steinweiss about it. And, Alan, thank you very much for being on the show. I really appreciate it. Well, uh, my pleasure, and thanks very much for having read my book so so carefully. Uh, absolutely. My pleasure. Take care now. You too. All right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. You've been listening to an interview with Alan Steinweiss about his new book, Kristallnacht 1938. I'm Marshall Poe, the host of New Books in History. I hope you have a great week.